Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading this morning can be taken from Isaiah chapter 13, which can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 697. Page 697, Isaiah chapter 13, beginning at, at verse 1. An oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them. Beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my holy ones. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains, like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms, like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath, to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will rise like a woman in labour. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming. A cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Like a hunted gazelle, like sheep without a shepherd, each will return to his own people, each will flee to his native land. Whoever is captured will be thrust through, all who are caught will fall by the sword, their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses will be looted and their wives ravished. See, I will stir up against them the Medes, who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flocks there. But desert creatures will lie there. Jockals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell. And there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in her strongholds. Jackals in her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand and her days will not be prolonged. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Aliens will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place, 
and the house of Israel will possess the nations as men servants and maidservants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we remain standing, let me pray for us. We've sung, Heavenly Father, of the word of God who sets us free. We thank you that the living word, the Lord Jesus, is the one who indeed sets us free from this world. We pray now as we turn to the written word uh, that you would speak to us to help us to become free from this world. Make us humble in believing. And we pray you would come and reign in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do sit. Well, let me uh, again add my welcome to that of, uh, of Andrew's earlier in the service and encourage you to do two things. One is to uh, turn in your Bibles uh, to the reading that we've just had uh, by Rachel, uh, Isaiah chapter 13 and 14 as we begin a new series looking through uh, chapters 13 to 27. Page 697 is the page number. The other thing that I think you'll find useful uh, if you like these sorts of things will be to dig out the, uh, the handout uh, that has been tucked inside and uh, you'll see various quotes and things there. Uh, to help you see where we're going in the next few moments. Uh, This uh, rarely makes the news, but all over the world, the church is under threat. I could tell you of a Christian pastor in Iran serving a six-year prison sentence charged with actions against the state. He's been so badly beaten in prison by uh, prison guards and other inmates that he's losing his sight and struggling to walk. In Nigeria, the Islamist group Boko Haram have been responsible for the violent deaths of hundreds of Christians since declaring war on Christians last year. A Christian mother in Pakistan is jailed, accused under Pakistan's blasphemy laws, and while she awaits an appeal against her death sentence, she is only permitted to see her family very infrequently. Now look, I could go on and on telling you stories. The point is this, the church is under threat all over the world. And I do mean all over the world. The threat here in Britain is far less acute than those examples I've just given, but it is here. The news this week of the first gay marriage in France and the pressure that conscientious objectors are being put under to conduct gay marriages is a warning of what may be coming our way should the government's attempt to redefine marriage be successful. Now look, when these pressures, when these sorts of pressures come bearing down upon Christians, whether it's the very extreme pressures of uh, Christians all over the world or the pressures that come upon us, the church will always be tempted to compromise, to make an alliance with the world, to protect us, to save us. That was the temptation facing God's people, Judah, at the time of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Barry Webb, in his excellent little commentary, comments, Uh, this way and uh, you'll uh, see this quote on the handout as a relatively small nation threatened by great powers Judah was constantly tempted to look to political and military alliance to save her that was what we saw in the earlier chapters of Isaiah as we studied it towards the end of last year in chapters 7 to 12 we saw how King Ahaz the king of Judah was feeling the military threat of what we then called the military alliance an alliance between Israel and Syria they had joined forces and were threatening to overrun Judah God's people but the prophet Isaiah told Ahaz don't fear them don't fear the alliance rather trust the Lord 
remain faithful to God, he will save you. More than that, the Lord said, do you remember this in chapter seven, verse nine? Again, the the quote is on here. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. If you make these alliances, you might think they're gonna save you. Actually, they won't save you at all. King Ahaz, sadly, though, wouldn't listen to God's word through the prophet Isaiah, and he turned to the Assyrians for protection. The Assyrians were the, the great world superpower of the day, and feeling threatened, Ahaz thought it would be a smart move to make an alliance with the most powerful nation in the world. Ahaz was uh, clearly forgetting the wonderful revelation back in chapter six of Isaiah, where we saw that the most powerful being in the world is the Lord Almighty. He is almighty. A real security, total safety comes from being faithful to the Lord, not the world. Well, look now, here in chapters 13 to 27, Isaiah speaks to God's people, Judah, and proclaims a series of oracles about the nations that are all around them, telling Israel not to trust the nations, but to trust the Lord. And that message is as relevant to us today as it was to them. We're always being tempted to trust something else other than the Lord to to get us out of a fix. In these recent years, I've become very aware of the, the constant temptation that I feel not to trust the Lord, but to be trusting, well, you know, the fact that I'm a bit politically savvy. Of course, I'm not, but I think I am maneuvering and manipulating a situation that's how I'll get round something now when I lean towards doing that I am likely to be ungodly let me explain our vision here at Fullwood Church as you know for the next 20 years is to plant churches train leaders and grow Fullwood we want to plant churches all over Sheffield and train up and send out leaders from here to be ordained to change the landscape of the nation but that very vision sometimes tempts me to be less, th- less godly than I should be. When, for example, I see something quite wrong happening in the Diocese of Sheffield, I think to myself, if I speak out against that, it might result in the young men that we're sending forward for ordination being turned down. And I think to myself, if I rock the boat, the, the diocese may be less inclined to allow us to plant churches. And so I'm tempted to keep quiet about the wrong I see. At those moments, you see, I'm tempted to make an alliance with people who are wrong. I'll keep quiet in order to protect our interests, but that is ungodly. That's uh, trusting others or trusting my political nous and not trusting the Lord. My task and yours is to speak out against things that are wrong. That is the godly and faithful thing to do. And my job is to be faithful to the Lord, to trust him, not to manufacture events or manipulate circumstances. Now that, I think, is the challenge before us in this section in the book of Isaiah. In chapters 13 to 27, the Lord speaks to his people through Isaiah the prophet by looking at different nations around them and demonstrating to Judah why they should not trust those nations. Uh, The structure of this section isn't complex. Uh, Throughout this section, you'll see the phrase, an oracle concerning, and I've put uh, all the times that happens uh, on the handout. There are 10 different oracles about the nations around Judah. And then there comes a summary uh, in chapters 24 to 27. But there's one part of the structure that I think is most instructive. The first oracle is about Babylon. The last concerns Tyre. 
Babylon is in the west. Tyre is in the east. Babylon and Tyre are the, great two, are the two great civilizations of the time. And the Lord is saying here then, as you look at this structure, from east to west and from everywhere in between, do not look to the world for your deliverance. Trust only in the Lord for your security and your salvation. And in bracketing this section with the two great civilizations of the known world, the Lord is further saying, whether it be actual Babylon or actual Tyre, or everything that Babylon and Tyre stand for, do not trust them. So this structure tells me that the first oracle about Babylon is not purely about physical Babylon. No, Babylon and the king of Babylon here represents all worldly arrogance and arrogance that defies God and tramples over others in its lust for power and security. Throughout the Bible, indeed, Babylon becomes a symbol, a name, if you like, for the world against the Lord. Again, I've put the references on the handout at the bottom of page one there. So while Babylon is an actual nation as Isaiah speaks, Babylon represents the world at any time in history that is in rebellion against God. But look, we mustn't for that reason think that Babylon is recognisably pure evil. Babylon is very attractive. It offers a life of luxury and opulence and wealth. Babylon promised a life of ease and comfort and security in a a quite delicious environment. Even today, two and a half thousand years later, we know of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a jewel of the kingdoms, a beautiful place to live. Who wouldn't want to be in Babylon? So look, we, we don't have to imagine how tempting it is to compromise in order to live a life of wealth and luxury and opulence. We know what it is to be chasing after Babylon today. There's a regular temptation that comes to many of us. If not a daily temptation, it's never far away. Now, at work, think of the times when you have a choice. A choice between doing the right thing as a disciple of Jesus Christ or compromising, keeping quiet going along with something that is less than godly. As a disciple of Jesus, why is that temptation of compromise so strong? Perhaps it's because you fear losing your job or not getting the, right, the next promotion. And why is that so important? Well, for many reasons, and some of them good reasons. You've got to pay the bills after all. But sometimes the, temp- the, the temptation to compromise rather than stand for Jesus is so strong because we fear that if we lose our job or the next promotion, we can't live in Babylon. We won't enjoy this life of luxury and opulence and wealth and ease. And because we so want to hang on to that, we become friends with the world. But our task is to trust the Lord. Because getting into bed with Babylon is such an attractive option, we need to see what the Lord told Judah would happen to Babylon. We need to hear this oracle about Babylon so that we'll, we'll stop and think and not make an alliance with the world. And indeed, this uh, oracle here in chapters 13 and 14 should give us all we need to remain faithful to the Lord. And so after that rather lengthy introduction, as we finally get to the text now, know where we're heading This is where this bit is heading. In a sentence, the Lord pronounces that Babylon is facing a devastating future as it comes under God's judgment, a judgment that would completely destroy Babylon. 
And so the Lord says, don't trust her because she has no long-term future. And if you do trust her, then neither do you have a long-term future. So chapter 13 and verse 1, an oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Verse 2, you'll see, is a, is a call to arms. It's a description of an army being assembled, a, a military force being called to enter the noble gates, the amazing entrance to Babylon. So we read in verse 2, raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Picture it, it's a military standard fluttering in the wind on a bare hilltop so that it can be seen for miles around. It's being raised as a rallying point for those who hear verse 2, the shout beckoning them to assemble. This shout is a shout from the Lord. For this army is being rounded up by the Lord. That's who's speaking here, verse 3. I have commanded my holy ones. I've summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Verses 4 and 5 would have sent a shiver down the spine of the first readers. It's not an image that we're particularly familiar with, but Judah and those in Jerusalem knew exactly what this was describing. It's an army gathering for war. You can hear the noise in the distance. Verse 4, listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. See, having just been attacked by the Syria-Israel alliance, Judah and Jerusalem had experienced that noise of a, a gathering in the distance. They knew what this meant. But this time, it isn't a foreign army attacking Jerusalem. It is the Lord mustering an army to march against Babylon, marching against the world that is against his people. So end of verse four, the Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from far away lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. See, we hear there, and as we read on, we'll hear it more. This is gonna be a day of total destruction. This is pointing towards the dreadful day of the Lord, verse six. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. So utterly terrifying will this day be that just the prospect of it leave people drained of all hope. Verse seven, because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. Their faces aflame. That's just at the thought of it happening. This day will be a day of total destruction for those who are against the Lord, a day like no other. Verse nine, it will bring desolation on the land. Sinners will be destroyed. And verse two, the whole cosmos will be, verse 10, the whole cosmos will be affected. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Now look, those words might well ring some bells for us. Those are the words quoted by Jesus in Mark chapter 10 and verses 24 and 25 as he spoke of the, the end of time, of the final judgment to come. And so as we read here of the actual fall of Babylon, we are at the same time pointed towards the final judgment upon all that Babylon represents. This speaks of a total destruction that will come upon all worldly arrogance that defies the Lord. 
On that day, says the Lord, verse 11, I will punish the world for all its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Now look, I reckon it's worth stopping here for just a moment. Throughout the book of Isaiah and uh, indeed through these chapters, it is arrogance and pride that is held up as the great sin, the greatest sin, the sin that will feel the full force of God's wrath. For you see, it is pride and arrogance that make us turn from the Lord. Pride says to the Lord, I don't need you. I don't need you. I'm self-sufficient. I can make it on my own. Babylon was full of pride, as was the king of Babylon, as we'll see in chapter 14 in a moment. It was, I think, John Bright who cleverly, if not unfairly, described Benjamin Disraeli as a self-made man who worships his creator. Being self-made, he worships himself, that's the point. It was a cutting political comment a couple of centuries ago or 150 years ago or so. But it's been used many times since to describe someone so full of themselves and their own achievements, a self-made man who worships his creator. That is the arrogance and pride that will face God's judgment. And desperately, there's something of that in all of us. It's the reason we turn from God. Arrogance and pride is wicked because it ignores the fact that we've, that we've come from God. None of us are self-made. Every breath I take comes from him. How do I think I have the ability to achieve anything if not through the talents that he's given me? How do I think I've stayed alive to achieve anything only because he's given me my next heartbeat? Babylon, the world of luxury, is full of pride. I've made it. I'm rich. Look what I've achieved. But be sure that sidelining of God ends in judgment because it is the most wicked thing in the universe to forget the source of life and to boast in my own achievements as if God had nothing to do with them that is wicked and so verses 12 to 18 speak of the carnage and utter desolation that will come upon mankind on this day of judgment Verse 14 is very telling as it describes people running to their own lands. You see, Babylon has been such a draw for all people. It seemed everyone wanted to live in Babylon, but not now. On that day of judgment, now it's the last place on earth people wanted to be. For the ruthless Babylons now are being treated the way they have treated others. Verse 15 Whoever is captured will be thrust through. See, that's what they did when they went out on their military campaigns. All who are caught will, be, will, be, will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives ravished because that's exactly what they did when they went out uh, to make their great kingdom. Let's face up to the fact today as well. In our pursuit of Babylon and a world of luxury, we too do this. We walk all over others. We trample over people in our pursuit of wealth. Murder unborn children because they'll inconvenience our careers. Well now, look, that judgment is coming upon Babylon. I was uh, talking to somebody this week who went on holiday to Monaco last year. He was telling me of how Shocked he was when he and his wife walked off the beaten track and in no time found themselves in a backwater. 
without realizing it, they, they crossed out of Monaco. It was, it was this close. Yeah, they just crossed out of Monaco and found themselves in a place that was dark and dingy and sinister, a very unsafe place, a very poor place. And he said to me, it was just Tuesday I was talking to him, he said to me, there were yachts worth millions just a stone's throw away, moored in the harbour in Monaco. There were people living the high life, entertaining themselves by spending eye-watering sums of money every day. And on their doorstep were people who had nothing. That's Babylon. That's how you treat people if you want to live in Babylon. Ironically, those who God raised up to bring about this judgment on Babylon, the Medes, verse 17, don't care for silver and have no delight in gold. That tells me that wealth, the wealth that Babylon so prized will count for nothing in the judgment. And then we see that the destruction that came upon Babylon will be total. Verse 19 Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flock there. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in her strongholds. Jackals in her luxurious palaces Her time is at hand and her days will not be prolonged. It's quite a picture, isn't it? This luxurious, most sought-after place will never be inhabited again, verse 20. And in 539 BC, this prophecy began to come true. The Persians under under Cyrus captured the city and Though uh, some of it was spared, it was finally destroyed by Xerxes in 439 BC and it's not been inhabited since. The message is clear. Babylon has no future. No future. It looks so attractive, but don't compromise. Don't make an alliance with Babylon in order to save yourself because in the long run, you won't save yourself if you've become part of Babylon. Indeed, the first two, chapter, first two verses of the next chapter, chapter 14, make that very point as the Lord turns from speaking about Babylon to just for a moment speaking a word of hope to his people. See, verse 1, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. In great contrast to the fall and destruction of Babylon, here is the rise of God's people. Verse 1, settling in their own land. And end of verse 1, being joined by aliens, by Gentiles. Verse 2. See, here is a complete reversal of fortunes. No longer are God's people downtrodden. The downtrodden slaves that they had been for so much of their history. Now, Israel is joined by the nations who want to serve them. Babylon has no future. God's faithful people do have a future. 4 verse 3, on that day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage. Indeed, there will be such a reversal of fortunes that day that we read these words, verse 4. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. The people of God are going to be taunting The king of Babylon. Look what they'll say. How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked. The scepter of the rulers. 
which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. And the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. See, these verses speak of rejoicing and singing over the destruction of the wicked. That's something we find hard to contemplate. Singing and rejoicing when God destroys But throughout the Bible, that's what happens. When God brings judgment upon the wicked, God's people rejoice. And and if we think about it, it, it does work. Just think back a couple of years ago to those most amazing scenes during what was called the Arab Spring. As wicked regimes were brought down and cruel leaders brought to justice, so the long oppressed people of the nations flooded onto the streets and celebrated. They sang. They were free. That's what we're seeing here from God's people at the deposing of the king of Babylon. He had been so cruel. And then as we draw to a close, in verses 9 to 15, we're given a most chilling picture. We're shown the response of the dead towards the king of Babylon. As the king of Babylon joins them in the place of the dead, Let me read these verses and just hear. This is the dead kings greeting dead, judged king of Babylon as he joins them. Verse 9, the grave below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who were leaders in the world makes them rise from their thrones. All those who were kings over the nations, they will all respond. They will say to you, You also have become weak as we are. You have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave. Along with the noise of your harps, maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. How you've fallen from heaven, O morning star of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You've once again laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mountain of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. Do you hear the the pride there in the king? I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I'll make myself the most high. But you're brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. It is a chilling section. In death and judgment, the king of Babylon, who made such boasts is taunted by others who say, who themselves have died under judgment. They say, despite all your boastful pride and all your arrogant claims, your fate is exactly the same as ours. See, on the day of judgment, the king of Babylon, who looks so invincible, the king of Babylon, who was the envy of so many, the king of Babylon is nothing more than a dead man. So verse 16 Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert and overthrew its cities and would not let his captives home? The great king of Babylon can do nothing now. Indeed, he is worse than nothing, as we read in verses 18 to 20. Him being trampled underfoot and not even getting a decent burial. The message is very obvious. The king of Babylon has no future. The king will be taunted in death. And the last part of this section, verses 20 to 23, show that he doesn't even leave a legacy for his descendants. 
The message is simple. Don't trust the world. Don't chase after Babylon. There's no future in it. Remain faithful to the Lord for he is what we really want. This is the striking thing. In running to Babylon, people were looking for something. They thought they just wanted luxury, but there was something else. Did you see the hints of it in the chapters that we've read? In chapter 13 and verse 14, at the judgment, we see people running from Babylon like sheep without a shepherd, aimless and without someone to guide them. In chapter 14 and verse 12, the king of Babylon had arrogantly called himself the morning star. That is a name given to Jesus later on in the Bible. And so do you see, people were looking for a shepherd, a leader, the bright morning star. He won't be found in Babylon. Isaiah has already promised the deliverer that we want back in chapter 9. As we close, come back with me to chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. It won't be a surprise to you, but it's wonderful to see it. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born. They're the words that we read at Christmas about the Lord Jesus. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. Very different to the rule of the King of Babylon. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forevermore. Here's the one we really want. His kingdom will be far more wonderful than Babylon. His reign will be so much better than that of the king of Babylon. His kingdom will be one of justice and peace and righteousness and it will go on forevermore. This one, the Lord Jesus is the one we want and he is the only one in whom we can find the security for which we look in Babylon he's the only one where we'll find security because he's the only one who's taken the judgment upon himself which we remember as we take bread and wine in a moment for you see the truth is we all run to Babylon and in running to Babylon we run away from the Lord all of us have done it except this one the Lord Jesus. And he took upon himself the darkness of the judgment as he died upon the cross. And so as Isaiah writes later, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He therefore is the only only place where we can find security. Friends, the church is always under threat. We will always fear the might of the world We'll always then be tempted to run to Babylon for safety and security and comfort. But you see here, running to Babylon has no future. So don't trust the world. Don't compromise. Whatever the threat, remain faithful to the Lord. For if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Let's pray together. Now, Lord and God, it's all around us. We recognise Babylon and its pull, the pull of luxury and opulence and wealth and what we think is security. 
Forgive us that as your people we think we can run there and enjoy that life. Forgive us that we compromise and turn from you to get that. And help us to see this morning, perhaps more clearly than we've seen for a long time, that that way has no future in it. Help us as we take bread and wine in just a moment to commit ourselves afresh to finding security in the Lord Jesus and him alone. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.